a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And you guys, today's guest is a new friend of mine, Michelle. And actually, Kaylee White is her name. We became friends before we ever met, which I think is becoming more and more common in today's world of digital and, and kind of communications. But We became friends through uh, the tragedy that is the fall of Afghanistan in August of 2021. Mm. Uh, I bet most of our listeners remember that. We were kind of captivated as a country watching on TV at the airport in Kabul. There was that tragic day when America lost several Marines all at once. And then we found out within time that one of them was a Utah boy, a Mm -hmm. young man named Taylor Hoover, a staff sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps, who happens to also be... Kaylee White's best childhood friend. So Kaylee, thank you for joining us today, especially so soon after this tender loss. And thank you for being willing to share your friendship with Taylor and what these last few months have been like for you as you've experienced this great tragedy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh yeah, we're excited. Now, Kaylee, this is a serious, somber conversation, but also you and I just love each other, and we know that's true. Right. (laughs) And we texted each other a million times back and forth, and we'll kind of get into that story to where it wasn't long before you and I knew we would be best friends just from texting. (laughs) And we come come from different worlds and different backgrounds, and unfortunately, our, our past came together because we now share this military loss where you've lost a best friend and I've lost a spouse, and... It's a tie that binds us very closely together, but also I think you and I are just kind of kindred spirits with how there's no nonsense. We're taking on the world. Watch out. Here I come. And that's what I love about you. So Kaylee and I, from the moment I met you over text and communicated with you and Taylor Hoover's family, I could just tell you had a resilience and an attitude about you that was going to inspire me and has helped me learn and grow in these few months that I've known you. And I'm really excited that you're willing to share a little bit of that power you have with our listeners. So, Kaylee, I'm wondering if you'll back up with us for a bit. Tell us about you and Taylor and your friendship when you were young kids. I think you said you met in eighth grade or something crazy like that? Yep, eighth grade. I think it was an English class that we had together. I don't know. I felt like we connected instantly. But if you asked him, he would say something very different because we're very different people. So we met in eighth grade and we were friends and then we got really close in high school. That's really when, like, everything blossomed for us. He was a football player. I was the loud party animal. He was, like, structured and quiet, and I just wasn't. And somehow we just understood each other, and he grounded me, and I feel like I amped him up. (laughs) I I love that. that No, (laughs) I love it so much. 
but we always made sure like I would always tell our teachers when we had classes together like I'm his tutor I need to help him out so he has to sit by me I never tutored him he was smarter than I was <laughs> that's like, funny <laughs> we just we just always had to be by each other and we went through so much stuff in our short little time period if you call it and it's one thing that I'm realizing now that I took for granted I love that you mentioned how different you are and yet how good you were for each other. I can think back to one of my closest friends in high school. We were night and day, night and day personalities. And most people were probably surprised we were even friends. And yet I look back on that friendship now, it's, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and how good that continues to be for me to have maybe that different perspective in a close relationship. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we gravitate, most of the time, we gravitate to the people we're exactly alike and we, yep. you know, we kind of associate ourselves with people who think like us and look like us and act like us. And yet to branch out and have someone who brings a different perspective. I love that you said he grounded you and you amped mm-hmm. him up. So what mm-hmm. was that? What was that friendship like after high school? Because you guys are out of high school for a while now. That's been several years. What did that look like? And had did you maintain that friendship even as you grew up and kind of moved into adulthood? We did. So he was around for a little while after high school and he actually just lived not far from me. So we would see each other all the time. And he enlisted, I think we were 19. I don't even remember. But he enlisted and we were talking about how he was going to go do this. And he was hoping that he would be stationed in Utah. But he also wanted to like explore the horizons and see where the world could take him. And I felt very grateful that he actually got stationed in California because it's not that far for me. And I love the beach. So we maintained a really good friendship. I would visit out there. He would come home and we would always make time for each other wherever we were. We talked daily, if not every day, every other day, even after high school, after he moved on, we had different relationships and we always made sure in those relationships that like, you don't get to like replace him in my life. Like I love him with my whole heart and he would say the same things to the girls that he was with. So this, this was never a romantic is. relationship between nope. the two of you. It was just this close connection. He was like my big brother, but I was older than him, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it never sparks, never nothing, just like instant best friends and siblings. I looked at him as a brother I never had. So that's cool that you were able to maintain that relationship because I think a lot of us, when we get out of high school and out of kind of that home childhood environment, we... We move on from some of those relationships. So Mm -hmm. what a treasure to be able to maintain that. Can you tell me, I'm a little curious, what were your thoughts about him joining the military in general? Was that something he grew up wanting to do? 19 is pretty young to jump out of high school and jump into the Marines. It's not super common here for a kid from Utah to do that. Can you tell us a little bit of your memory of, of maybe how that came to be and how you felt as he made that decision? When Taylor decided that he wanted to do this, I didn't really have any feelings about it because I just supported him in anything that he wanted to do. I was scared, obviously. It was in the midst of the Afghanistan stuff, and I didn't really follow a lot of the war and politics and all that stuff, but it made me nervous because you just hear so many people not coming home. But I was like, he's got a good head on his shoulders. Like, if this is really what his passion is, then I back him 5,000%. I worried about him every single day that he was gone, but we would still communicate. Like in the beginning, 
Facebook was still a new thing, but we physically wrote letters to each other in the beginning. And I still have those letters. Oh, they've got to be a treasure. Um, yeah. I lost them for a minute, but I found them with all of this. Um, oh, good. So we would write letters, and then Facebook became a thing. And every time he was gone, we could talk via Facebook. And when he was just in San Diego, we could text and we could call and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't worry too much because I could always have some type of communication with him. Yeah, so tell me, you mentioned, we know he's from Utah, from the Salt Lake Hillcrest High School area. He was mm-hmm. stationed in San Diego, California, which makes sense, Marines. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have a ton of Marines stationed right here in, in Utah necessarily. Right. Where did he go? You said every time he was gone. Give us a timeline. How long was he in the military? Because he joined at 19, and was he 31 when he was killed? I'm trying to remember. 31. Okay, yeah, so that's a, dozen, for, that's a dozen years. Yeah. Was he always stationed in yeah. California, or did he move around a bit? Nope, he was always stationed in California. Huh. He started in 29 Palms and then went to Pendleton. Okay. And I don't know the difference of the two, but I guess it's a thing. So he started there. But when he was, like, gone, there were times where he was, like, doing field trainings, and he was completely off the books. And I don't know where he was for those. I don't know if they do those in California. <laughs> <laughs> or he was deployed three times. Okay. So he was just kind of gone a lot, and there were times where I honestly I had no idea where he was. Yeah. I I just had to trust in him. Yeah. There were times with my husband that, you know, I wouldn't really be allowed to know where he was or what he was doing. And you do get a little nervous when they're off the grid, but reassured by the fact that most of the time they came back on the grid. You know, I, um, I can think back to the last deployment my husband was on and he would do the same where he'd go on different missions and always in Afghanistan this time, but he'd go on a helicopter. So he was going somewhere further away and he'd come back. But he had gotten to the point in our communication that he would warn me, hey, I'm going to be off the grid for three or four days or however long so that if I didn't mm-hmm. get a text or a Facebook message in that time, I didn't panic. And so, you know, he he recognized that need for me to know, hey, if you're not going to hear from me for three or four days. Great. Don't yep. panic. Because like you said, we started writing letters too. What would it have been like way back in, you know, World War II or something or Vietnam where the only correspondence was letters that could take weeks to arrive if they ever arrived. You and I had that opportunity to communicate through social media and text where if I didn't hear from him mm-hmm. today, he better have an answer for it tomorrow. <laughs> so right. it sounds like yours was very similar. Oh, yeah. Kaylee, I love it. You know what, though? I loved the letters. Like it was just like something that you like got to look forward to. You didn't know when you were going to get one. So when you did get it, it was like a little pleasant surprise. And, and they last. Yeah, and I still get to heat them now. And yeah. in our letters, we bantered just like we did in day-to-day life. So it was... It, oh, those are so it, priceless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about you. We know a lot about your friendship with Taylor and his decision to sh- join the military. What about you? How many people were in your family growing up? What things were you interested in? What do you do for a living? Give us a little bit. Who's Kaylee on the Kaylee and Taylor friendship side of things? So... I've got one older sister. We are actually eight years apart, and it's just the two of us. So my poor father has two daughters <laughs> and a girl dog and a wife. That's a um, lot of females. A lot of females. I'm sure Brent felt the same way with all of your females in your family. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm full-time in the mortgage industry. I'm a mortgage processor, so I get to help people fulfill the American dream and get their first home, get their dream home anything that revolves around that. And I've done this for, you know, goodness, six 
years, seven years, seven years this year. Oh, that's um, awesome. And before this, I was actually in hospice. That was my longtime goal. I dreamt of being like a nurse practitioner in the hospice world. And my direction actually changed when my dad died because I couldn't deal with death anymore. Wow. I didn't know that about you, yeah. Kaylee. Wow. How long yeah. ago was that? He passed away in 2014. Wow. So that could be a whole other conversation. Yeah. I mean, your friendship, your, your, my friendship is pretty new and I did not know that about you and your father. I'm sorry to hear that. But what a change you, to, to grow up thinking you want to have a career in hospice and then mm-hmm. to be a little too and close to that. It. Yeah. I look at it now and I'm like, why did I get out? Like it fulfilled me in ways that nothing else can because I mean, I worked at a nursing home and there was people that like their families didn't come and visit on Christmas. So I would pack my family and we would go to the nursing home and go hang out with them. Oh, how sweet. It was something that I now looking back, I wish I wouldn't have gotten out of it. But now I get to help people in a different way. I get to help with the happy moments of their life instead of the devastating parts. But I think both of those career choices speak volumes about your character. I mean, the fact that you introduce yourself, I'm a mortgage processor who gets to help people fulfill that dream of home ownership or financial stability in their loans, not just, hey, I make a bunch of money closing house loans. You know, you right. have that passion for helping people in all walks of life. I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more and this story of your friendship with Taylor. I think what we'll do is take a quick break for a minute and then we're going to jump in to that fateful day in August of 2021 and let's start that journey of of when you learned that you had lost your best friend. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. All right. So Kaylee, when you and I met, you had a different last name than you have now because you recently got married. So you've told us about your childhood. Can you tell us now about adulthood, your husband, your new family? So I actually got married in October. He and I have dated on and off for 10 years and he finally decided to make an honest woman. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, Right. Um, We have a most adorable 17 year old boy, which I'm learning how to deal with boys. It's, well, in teenage boy, you but, you jump you didn't jump into baby boy. You jumped right in, girl. Let me know if you figure that right, out. <laughs> right in, and it's hard. Yeah, but does you know, he live with I, you? Is he back and forth with mom? Where's Where's your stepson? He's He's back and forth. Okay. Um, 
and Nick and I are going to actually start having kids too. So he's starting all over again. That's exciting though. That's exciting. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Kaylee. So we've gotten to know you and Taylor. You've been friends forever. You've each had different romantic relationships outside of your friendship. You're now married. I happen to know that Taylor was engaged, not yet married, but he was engaged to be married. So you've both been able to maintain this platonic friendship while having meaningful romantic relationships each in your life. And then here comes a day, August in 2021. Can you walk us through your viewpoint of that day and the immediate days after? So that day, it's really interesting to like, for that I look back on it. That day I woke up with like, a pit in my stomach. I didn't know what it was. Sorry, I'm going to cry. Just a pit. And I was like, I don't know, like, if I just don't feel good, but, like, something just fell off that day. And I brushed it off and went to work and mingled about my day. And then I got onto Facebook, and it was like, there's a bombing in Afghanistan. And I was like, oh, weird. Like, I'm sure there's bombings every day in Afghanistan, isn't there? And so I really didn't think much of it. And then um, I don't remember who, but somebody was like, did you hear about the Marines that were killed in Afghanistan? And I was like, what are you talking about? I heard that there was a bombing, but that's all I've heard. So I looked at it and no one's names were released yet. This was the 26th of the day that it happened. So I started watching and listening and I was, then they were like, 12 Marines have been killed. And I was like, my head started going down the rabbit hole. And I'm like, 12 Marines, Taylor's in Afghanistan. He just got there. He's fine. I I, I don't, I can't, I'm not a Debbie Doomsday Downer kind of girl. Like, I just try and look at the brighter sides of everything. I'm like, he's fine. He's, he's not dumb. He's fine. So then I was talking to Nicole, which was Taylor's fiance. And she's like, Kaylee, I just, I, I feel like, something's wrong. And I was like, he's fine. Like he's smart. He's fine. But in my head, I'm freaking out. I'm like, okay, she feels this way. I feel this way. I woke up with a pit in my stomach. Something's wrong. I kept checking Facebook. I kept checking news articles, all the things all day long. My husband, who is also a, he's a Marine vet and he's like, it's fine, but let me reach out to whoever I can to see what is going on. He got no answers. And at that point, I was like, well, he's not getting answers and something's happened. And then I just, I was like, if I know, they'll call me. And Nicole called me, actually, I think it was like 1.30 in the morning. And I knew that second. Well, she texted me first and said, are you awake? And when you're asleep, you don't hear your phone go off. Like, I don't. So I heard it go off, which is uncanny for me. And... I sent her a text back and I said, yeah, what's up? And she called me immediately and she was like, Taylor's gone. Oh my gosh. Mm. And we talked for a minute and I was actually at my mom's house that night and I went up to go sit with her and like we talked and I, I, I didn't believe it, you know, like maybe they got it wrong. Yeah. Of all the Marines in all the world. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they got it wrong because he's come home and this just, it can't be. Right. It's so such we a typical on. response. Yeah. It, whenever we lose anyone, yeah. whatever There's the no circumstance. Way this really 
Yeah. It must be a mistake. Right. Our brains mistake. do not yeah. want to accept it. That's the first no. response. So then I talked to her the next morning and she's like, no, Kaylee, like this is real. And then I, I reached out to his dad and was, and his mom. And I was just like, what can I do? Blah, blah, blah. And I actually went over and saw his dad because his mom is in Missouri. So I couldn't go and like hug her. And I went and talked to his dad and his grandparents and spent some time with them. And even to this day, I don't feel like it's real. If that makes sense. It does because you're still so new into this. And Kaylee, you and I had talked about this um, just before going on air that it's only been a few months for you. It's only been a few years for me and Michelle. And there are still those moments where it feels like you're in some kind of a weird twilight zone where that that didn't really happen. That can't really be real. The grief or the shock of it kind of catches your breath like, oh, my gosh, that actually happened so can you tell us what what were those first few days like? Like you said, Taylor's mother doesn't live in Utah anymore, but she's came obviously to town. And mm-hmm. Taylor's dad does live in Utah. You're friends with both of them and with his sisters and his fiance. Mm-hmm. Most people mm-hmm. listening have never been through a military loss personally. You've been through it as a friend. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through those first couple of days, what that looked like with planning you know, the family leaves to go get the body. You stayed here. A vigil was planned. Walk us through, just kind of give us a timeline for those few days in the immediate aftermath. So the few days after, uh, it's a whirlwind. I mean, I don't know, Jenny, I'll honestly give all credit to you because I don't know how anything could have happened without you, to be honest. And that's not to toot your horn, but I'm tooting it. Beep, beep. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a whirlwind. We, you and I got into contact and we made sure that we could get the family out here and the amount of people that took the time to assist the Hoover family and to assist the, I don't, I'm like, I don't even know how it all happened or how it all came together. I just know that it's a blur. I don't remember half the things I said. I don't remember half the things I did. Yeah, you were interviewed by the media to... quite a few times as being almost a family spokesperson, weren't you? I mean, you were yeah. you were right at the front of a lot of this. Yeah, and I, I think that was the best because his mom and sisters, they just, they weren't ready to talk. And someone needed to say something. And besides Nicole, I was the next person that I knew Taylor. I knew him from the time he was how old are you in eighth grade? Yeah, like 15, 13, 14, 14. Yeah. 13. Yeah. And I mean, every time I did, I made sure that I like talked to Kelly and make sure that I could talk on her behalf until they were ready. And it's, I just wanted to go into that full force and just be the strong part for Kelly and the girl yeah. because they were all numb and, I just wanted to let them know that I've got their back and that I will, I'll take it on for them. Well, and you provided a great service to kind of buffer the public nature of this because anytime a service member is killed in action, it's obviously very public. There's a news conference. Mm -hmm. It's on the news. The whole world kind of knows about it. But there was something very unique about this fall of Afghanistan period because it's almost as if we watched it happen in real time. 
we as a yeah. country had been so captivated by those last couple of weeks of that withdrawal of our American troops. And I remembered the night before going to bed hearing that there was threats of an attack and waking up in the morning hearing there had been a bomb like you had woken up and heard. And then I remember having a conversation on the 26th with another news, uh, a news member here in Utah. And she said, hey, do you think there's anybody from Utah among those killed? I said, well, to be honest, right now, nobody knows. Um, it takes a right. while. It takes a while between the death and the notification. They're obviously going to tell the primary next of kin before they tell the news. And yep. so she and I, this news anchor and I, talked through what would happen if there had been someone from Utah. And, and basically, my, my assertion was, well, if, it, if we don't hear in the next you know, eight to 10 hours, that's good news. No news is good news. And sure mm-hmm. enough, in the next eight to 10 hours came that announcement that Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover had been killed. And you and I came in touch through an aunt of Taylor's who is local here, and they had wanted to plan a family vigil. And mm-hmm. can you tell us about the vigil from your perspective, what it meant to you as a friend to see the community come together in a really remarkable, unparalleled way. Again, I think any time a service member is killed, our hearts are softened as Americans. But there was something special about Taylor's death and the death of the others that day where it felt as if the entire state of Utah came together in awareness of that. What was that like for you? How did that feel from your perspective? What was that particular Sunday like in your eyes? You know, that day, um, it was a remarkable day. I have, I lost a lot of faith in humanity for a while. You know what I mean? Like people were just so cruel with each other and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And that day, it's almost like the people of Utah, they took it personal. It's like they lost someone close to them as well. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And the fact that people cared enough to be there and honor him was something I'll never forget. And going forward, I'm going to be one of those people. It's funny how it changes you, isn't it, Kaylee? And funny, funny is probably not the right word. Um, You know, Taylor's death impacted me in a very unique way because I was on the other side of it than I had been three years before. You know, three years before I was you, I was in the blur, I was in the whirlwind, I was just showing up to places with no real clue what was happening. And then when Taylor died and I met you, I had that sacred opportunity to help plan the other side of it. And it was remarkable to me to see the state of Utah come together. I mean, you and I know we were working with both of our senators, (laughs) all four of our congressmen, our governor, lieutenant governor. We had the attorney general. We had the state. I mean, we had every elected official, it seems, from the state of Utah was helping to get Taylor's family to Dover and back, helping to get them here, helping to get the the body returned from Afghanistan, helping to get the funeral plans. Um, A funeral at Arlington is not a fast thing to plan. It can take weeks, if not months, to be able to schedule a a military member's burial there. Uh, We're running short on time, but Kaylee, can you tell us just about the day of the funeral services itself in Arlington, Virginia, and then we'll take a break and come back. Can you walk us through that sacred day? So that day, that is something that 
everybody should witness. Not a lot of people will get to, but it was so humbling. It was so beautiful. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of Marines from all walks of earth that were there. We had some of our senators from Utah there. There were senators from Arkansas that were there because Taylor was actually born in West Memphis, Arkansas. So just the amount of people, and there were strangers alike that were there. The unit that Taylor was actually with, not his unit, but the unit that he was with the day he was killed was there. Like it just, it was absolutely beautiful. The sky was as blue as could be. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. The the horse-drawn carriage with the, the body going from one point to another. And the, that flag-draped casket. It's just such a powerful the, image. It was something. And then when they folded the flag and gave it to Taylor's mom, like it was gut-wrenching, but it is, it's something that, and honestly, the procession from the funeral home to the burial, there wasn't a dry eye. That was more heartbreaking to me than the actual funeral. We were driving in the streets of Virginia, and there was hundreds of cars in this procession, and they blocked off all ways of traffic so no one could go left, right, straight, forward, backwards. And people were out of their cars with their hands over their heart, and there was full police forces lining a street, fire stations hanging a flag. It was, I have so many pictures of it, but it was absolutely beautiful. And that is something that you don't see that here in Utah, but those people in Virginia probably see it countless times. And they still stop and get out of their cars and take off their hats or put their hand over their heart and They've seen it a thousand times. That is such a beautiful memory. I hope you'll share some of those photos with us and we can share them with our listeners because I think this is one of those yeah. situations where a picture is worth a thousand words. Kaylee, you're right that most of America will never witness a military burial at Arlington. I never have. We buried my husband here at, at home. And yet, what a powerful reminder of the price of freedom the price of opportunity mm-hmm. and hope that comes with that great American dream that you help every day with mortgage loans, you know, those, those opportunities that sometimes we maybe take for granted or maybe just complain about. And yet right. when you're in that moment, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind's eye, the photos I've seen you share of that casket of that flag of that horse-drawn carriage of our senators and congressmen and, and Marines and strangers alike standing in full respect and attention I think mm-hmm. those are the moments that maybe in our hustle and bustle, we would be wise to once in a while look at those kind of photos and maybe yeah. listen to those kinds of stories. And hopefully it'll stop yeah. us in our tracks, not just to make us more resilient, but to make us a little more aware of, of that price that is paid so that we can have our freedoms and opportunities right. here. Before Taylor, I didn't even blink an eye over that kind of stuff. And it's not that I was like ungrateful for our military service men and women, but you just don't think about it. Yeah. You don't think about the families and the friends that are going through it on that end. I always looked at it as, and even with Taylor, this is how I always pictured him leaving this world. Huh. I never vocalized it, but I think that's, I haven't grieved yet. And I think that's why I think in my heart, this is how I always prepared for him to go. And 
this is exactly how he would want to, but no one thinks about the people on the other side. I mean, look at when there's a funeral here. How often are you like, I've got to pull over again for another car in this procession? I've got to go to work. I've yeah, got to we go feel impatient or bothered. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's and true. For me, not anymore. Yeah. And if I do see that it is some type of military, I will also pull over. So this whole thing has really just opened my eyes. Kaylee, I love that you've been willing to share this. We're going to take another break, and then I want to come back, and in our last few minutes together, tell us more of what you've learned and how you've changed um, through this terrible, awful process that has brought great growth and compassion into your life. We'll be right back. Kaylee, you mentioned how Taylor's funeral, the processional at Arlington has changed you. It's changed your viewpoint. It's changed your appreciation. Can you tell us what else you've learned, how you've grown, and what resilience looks like to you as a result of this journey that you're just beginning? We're not saying the journey's over. You're just on the baby steps of this journey. What have you learned? Um, What's this growth process been like for you? I always thought like, oh, I'm I'm a really good person. I I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm all these things. And then I go through this and I'm like, no, you're not. You're not any of those things. <laughs> so going through this, I I just learned that I, I honestly, I have more of an appreciation for America and our servicemen and women and our Gold Star families and people that this is taking. Like, I look at myself as an outsider. I, I don't look at myself as like a family of one of the 13 fallen. I've got close ties, but I just look at myself as an outsider and I'm going to be more patient. I need to, I'm going to be more involved and you don't realize until you're going through it, how much just one person showing up for a candlelight vigil means to that family, whether it's somebody who's passed away, whether it's somebody who's missing, all of those things, you don't realize what one person let alone 500 can mean to that family and those that are going through this. And I just learned through all of this, that I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be more active in my community and reach out to those that are hurting as well. It's just made me realize that I, I always thought I was a good person, but there's always room for growth. Absolutely. And I love that. That's what I'm all about this year. In fact, um, I love that. I love that that you're all about growth. We often discount the value that we can bring to the world around us, that people are watching all the time. And we yep. have no idea who is watching. I know that when we had my husband's services, my husband didn't really have very many friends. So I thought it would be fairly small. We were hosting it in a large room out at a racetrack and there was standing room only. It was packed. And so, like you said, the person, the one person showing up for the vigil, it so matters. That has changed my outcome and my look. You know, I, I really didn't think that I needed to go to the ward members families, wedding receptions. And I just figured they don't care if I'm there or not. I don't know these children or 
And now I have a completely different perspective on what that means to show up. And I show up to weddings and funerals and I... I make my very best effort to prioritize those things at the top of my priorities, mm-hmm. no matter how inconvenient they are. Isn't it? Isn't it funny how that inconvenience becomes an opportunity once yeah. you've been on the on the grieving side? Yep. When you've been the one touched by someone showing up, or lighting a candle, or sending a text, or saying a prayer. I love this, Kaylee. Can you define resilience in your life? We always like to ask our our guests that kind of at the very end of the podcast. What does resilience look like, or what does it mean to you? Resilience to me is just, and it, it might come off horrible, but resilience to me is adapting and overcome and moving forward. You take your your tragedies like Taylor, and the hard thing is, is like. I'll never forget him, but like I, you adapt and you overcome and you, I just, this is my reality now. I can either sit here and cry and cry and cry. It's not going to bring him back or I can adapt and I can move forward and honor him in different ways. So resilience to me is just, is growing and, and moving on and trying to, adapt and overcome. I love that so much. Those two words, adapt and overcome. Like how much better would be at taking life on head on if every day we were to think, my job today is to adapt and overcome, regardless of what comes yep. my way. That little you know, incident on the freeway or interaction with one of my children, or maybe a co-worker says this or that, or maybe there's a terrible, awful tragedy today. I don't mm-hmm. have to fix it. I don't have to undo it. I don't have to sit and wish it never happened. My job right. is to adapt and overcome. Kaylee, that is a powerful, simple definition of resilience, and I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Of course. And sadly, we're out of time. I feel like we could just talk forever about lessons learned. We could we could go around and take turns how your story relates to my story or something you said sparked a memory in my mind and my heart, but our time has right. come to a close. We want to thank you, Kaylee, for joining us, particularly so soon after the loss of your best friend. Like you said, I haven't really even grieved yet. It, it's all brand new. The journey is just beginning. Please know that we're here for you. Know that there are listeners in our audience who maybe haven't been through exactly what you've been through, but our hearts connect when we share these stories. Thank you for being open and real and vulnerable. And to our listeners, I would say the same thing. Thank you for connecting with us. If you have a story that you're willing to share, we would love to hear it and share it with our listeners. Any opportunity that you've had to to adapt and overcome, to face something unexpected or terrible or tragic and what you've learned and how you've grown and how you've either come through it or are still coming through it. If you have something you're willing to share, please find us, contact us and let us know. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Remember whatever you do today, Remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day, everybody. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. 
find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.